James Bashara went from being a D1 basketball prospect to an economist in South Africa to founding and running Tilt, a crowdfunding startup which launches more campaigns than any other startup in the world. I also play basketball and I studied economics in school, but basically James has achieved more in every field to which I've previously applied myself and has now decided to become my friend to make me feel better. All right, here's James. So you, you, we were in Austin, we were hanging in. You grew up in Austin. I grew up in Dallas in Austin, yeah. So grew up in Dallas um, and then was in Austin building out Tilt and the first uh, version of it um, before moving out to San Francisco for YC. But let, let's go back. Were you into tech as a kid or what were you into? So it was kind of a, a unusual path. I was very much into tech when I was young. Uh, my first job was repairing computers and literally... Uh, would ride, ride my bike up to Direct Connect in Snyder Plaza. A little shout out. I'm sure they're all listening. Uh, <laughs> would I would ride my bike up there and I would just be in the back of this really dingy old office repairing computers. And um, and I was networking offices. Uh, one of my claims to fame is I, I helped network uh, AT&T's headquarters. Um, and, and so was on this, the hardware side of things and really loved technology from that perspective. But this was the mid-90s. And then... I think by uh, about 2000, I just kind of got really fed up with just repairing computers, to be honest, uh, installing operating systems and, uh, and networking houses and offices. It just, what, I, you know, it just wasn't that exciting, and, and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a leap for people to know that that's not that exciting. But, uh, but I went to college, and I was studying development economics. And Why did you study development economics? Oh, man, it is... Um, it's such a fascinating subject. So I was studying economics at first and then I started taking a couple international development classes. And this was 2004, 2005, 2006. And, um, and just seeing economics and the, these theories applied to 90% of the world, uh, you know, the developing world. And, and um, Was this like peak Jeff Sachs time or was this before? It was, it was yeah, it was close to it. Um, and Jeffrey Sachs, is a, he's a, a great writer and great... Um, he's a great advocate for development, but uh, within the d- actual uh, academic realm, he's not he's not too highly um, respected. I think it's it is when Bono writes the forward of your book, um, you know, there's some maybe some academic suspicion on, on kind of the, the quality of the work, but um, but it, yes, he's a he's a prominent uh, development economist, um, and uh, William Easterly is another one. If if anyone's anyone out there is interested in development economics, William Easterly. Uh, phenomenal um, researcher, the Brookings Institute, mm-hmm. brought him to speak at, at Wake Forest and uh, and really got kind of pulled into applying economic theory and into the real world and um, and after graduation was working on the ground and in, in development and uh, right outside of Cape Town, South Africa. And I picked up web development in college. So while I was down and I was building just uh, WordPress, I picked up PHP and was building WordPress for, sites. You for, picked it up for fun? Yeah, for fun. It was uh, just for friends. And back then, in like 2007, 2008, you could charge like four or $5,000 to build someone a WordPress site. And um, every WordPress developer out there knows this. That was the, the golden age. And, um, and so I really loved that. And I, I got back into technology from the software side of things. Um, and when I was down in Cape Town, I kind of... I attempted to marry the two the things that I loved, economic development, web development, started building out um, crowdfunding software. 
Wait, so we'll get to that. But before, you're in South Africa. You're doing development work. What what is development work in South Africa look like? So yeah, my um, my job out of school. This is um, it's it, so I lived there for a little over two years, and my job out of school. It was six days after graduation, I'm on a plane going to South Africa, and my job, my first job at this uh, microfinance organization um, called Kuyasa. A little shout out to them because uh, I'm sure they're listening. The uh, my first job was I was a loans collector for a microfinance organization, quite literally knocking on doors in the townships right outside of of South Africa um, for delinquent um, uh, repayments of loans and, and collecting. The money collecting the the re the the loans the, um, and the you choose things that are just not that exciting <laughs> yeah exactly this was this was very exciting this was um, man it was crazy just to, on a slight aside I was this you know six three gangly white kid um, in some of the most dangerous parts of the world um, Cape Town has very very high crime rates and um, and I'm and I only learned this after the fact, but the reason they put me out there was um, was that a white guy in the townships uh, outside of Cape Town, shit has to be going really bad for a white guy to be knocking on doors. And it's like it is literally a white a white dude knocking on the doors means that it, you're either police or a lawyer. And like this is like you know a, a code red. Um, and so they used you. And for so your they whiteness. used me for that. And I had no, I had no idea. I was just like, okay, yeah, this is just everyone does this at yeah. first. And um, and then after that was in the reconciliation department, uh, going over kind of the loan reconciliations and kind of the accounting. Um, and and then I started to uh, while I was working there, started to build out, um, started to build out a website called develop.org that ended up kind of falling ass backwards into crowdfunding. And was this under the organization? Or? This no, it was on my side own project. project. This is my own side project. So. At this time, you're, you're knocking on doors. Did you think you were going to be an, an academic? Did you oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. In, in economic development, you either work on the ground or you go work at the World Bank or the IMF. But um, the uh, I actually thought I was going to be an academic as of you know three years ago. When I, really? When I started working on uh, Tilt, and we are called Crowd Tilt back then, um, when I started working on the idea, I was still working for um, working for uh, a company in Dallas, just saving up to go to grad school for economics, for economic wow. development. So yeah, you yeah. never wanted to be World Bank or IMF. I did. I, in okay. fact, that was the the path that I was on was gotcha. potentially be um, a professor, but. You know, when you if you graduate with a master's or a PhD in development economics, you're either the only two places you can really yeah. go is the World Bank or be a professor. So was, I thought it was going to be one of those two. You, you know, I majored in economics. So I, I, oh yeah, I got a little bit. There we go. You got some <laughs> economics games. Just a little bit. Um, Supply and demand, but really just a little bit. <laughs> and I would not recommend it. <laughs> but uh, okay, so you don't. I mean, you don't see a lot of people who are either like going to make the transition, either going to be academics or entrepreneur, like. There's not a huge overlap in those skills, or what do you think? Yeah, there, it's uh, there. There is a huge overlap. Um, to be, you know, effective teacher, you've got to take a complex concept and be able to break it. Not only understand it in and out, uh, but be able to explain it so fluidly that you're breaking down a complex subject into very simple parts. And I think, you know, my job now we're um, over sixty people, and and my job is very much it's just breaking down. Um, these kind of seemingly complex concept of building a company where you have just so many different variables. 
knowing what's most important and, and making sure everyone, you know, in, in, in the classroom and the, within the walls, I don't even pretend to be an expert on it, but right. um, breaking down complex concepts into really simple ones, I think serves you well as a professor or as an entrepreneur, big time, for investors, for recruits. We were spending minutes earlier uh, talking about whether uh, you should have music playing uh, in the office or not. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, but it, it's a constant struggle. Yeah, it <laughs> daily. is. No, it is a daily struggle. Well, it's, it is, it is emblematic of the daily struggle. The daily struggle is um, how do we build the best environment to, to do our best work? And yeah, I was asking because uh, for those that uh, that haven't been to product hunt offices, um, you know it's it's just, it's completely quiet, and I love it. And there's some sanctuary in that. Our office has light music playing in the background. It's blues in the morning, um, and it's a little higher BPM stuff in the <laughs> afternoon. And um, and we actually kind of I don't even know if people in the office know that I I think about that stuff a lot, but. Um, Surprisingly, I think about those little things uh, and those little tiny details, um, meeting rooms and how many meeting rooms we have and how quiet you can get in them, how many meetings we have as, as a company, how quick are our team meetings. Like I think about those things um, surprisingly much more than it's just kind of the big thematic um, concepts in building a company. Um, I'm, I'm continuously surprised by how much I'm thinking about those little things. Um, and how much of the day is, is taken up by thinking, how can we really maximize the productivity of these incredibly smart folks we have in the office? And two, I'm completely surprised by, I feel like the last 12 months of my life, I only think in cliches and all these cliches that, that, uh, that you hear around the world, you just, and uh, starting a company, you don't, really, you don't really absorb them. And then you see it happening, you're like, oh my God. What are the biggest ones that come to mind for you? Um, the biggest one I was talking about yesterday t with uh, Chris uh, Weinstruff from from GitHub is the journey is the destination, mm -hmm. and and it's you know a cliche that you just hear and it's like it's like something that goes on a welcome mat or like a Hallmark card, um, but it is totally totally true. You manage the process and the results take care of themselves. And um, and building a company, it's essentially destinationless. You know, you don't know what the destination will really look like. I know with my with Caleb, my co-founder and I, we hope to be building Tilt forever. And um, and you know that's there is admittedly delusion in that uh, in that of wanting to build it for forever. I don't think any companies last that long. But in going about it with that with that mentality, then it's very much every day has to be its own destination. Every day, every decision point, every up and down. Is, is that's where you gotta really appreciate and relish um, the moments because there is no there is no five year plan that if we hit this five years from now um, everyone's gonna be happy. Yeah, I think you you draw up those things, um, you put that in a business plan, you know when you're when you're just getting going or when you're a total noob, and then you realize you really have to love the battle every single day because there are days when it is so tough. You think about that in your personal life too. For sure, yeah. It's you. Know, I so I have gotten to the point where, um, and I say this uh, pretty often internally, that um, I, Kayla and I love. We love what we get to do so much every single day that all of our effort is just making sure we get to do this for a long ass time. And I think that's um, 
And that might be particular to, to us because we, you know, when we started, one of the things we first, the, we were introduced through an angel investor. We were a rare kind of like uh, kind of startup love at first sight when we had a coffee and within three hours we're like, all right, we're going to start a company together. Uh, it's not the norm. In fact, like Y Combinator, that's, that totally breaks right. the, the, mo- the, mo- the model for, for uh, YC. But the, um, that's how we met. And right after that coffee, um, I was moving down to Austin. I was going to be living with him. So the first night that I got down there, went through 15 questions. What would we do if XYZ happened? What would we do if XYZ happened? And we had the, the exact same answers. Wow. Um, and, and so one of the questions was, what would we do if we got a, an offer, before we even launched, got an acquisition offer for some large uh, delusional sum or something? And our answer was a genuine no. We would not take it. We'd keep building it. Then it was, uh, what if we're going through a rough patch 18 months in and we get an acquisition offer for XYZ amount, would we take it? Um, and the answer was no. And, and in, from the very get-go, we were like, we're going to build this company for a long time. And, uh, and so with that kind of lens, we realized we have to love every single day of it. And so, all right, let's go back to South Africa. You're thinking about this crowdfunding thing. Uh, you're curious about it. Kickstarters. Is this before Kickstarter? Yeah, this is right when they're getting going. Yeah. In fact, I was actually building this in 2009, 2010, um, the same time that Kickstarter launched. But they they weren't like any of these companies. They're not. Uh, they're nothing when they launched. Like it was just kind of like blip on the radar. And um, and there are a few others. Indiegogo is actually yeah. older than Kickstarter, and so I knew that the, these other kind of uh, platforms exist, existed for creative and artistic endeavors. Um, Kiva.org existed for microfinance. And I was wanting to build out, I wanted to build out a platform for microinsurance. Um, it's a big word, but it's essentially insurance, the insurance tools that we all take for granted here in the in the West and of life insurance, health insurance, uh, property insurance, providing those to the extremely poor. Yeah. Um, you and I, you know, if we're hurt and we're put in the hospital, um, Having health insurance is super. Right. So medical insurance, I mean, it is, it is quite literally a lifesaver for us. And the poor would benefit just as much. And how did that work? Did, did so work? I started building it out, brought on a friend from uh, a high school friend, uh, my buddy Drew, and we started to build that out in Cape Town. Um, we launched in beta, and we were seven weeks into beta, and the SEC, the new ruling on, the online, on online lending came through at the end of 2009 that they were going to start regulating online lending. This was 17, 18 months into building out develop.org. We're seven weeks into launching it. And we knew that there was a chance that the SEC was, was going to change their stance on online lending. But they did that at the end of 2009. It became very clear what was going to happen in the beginning of 2010, right when we were launching. And um, long, depressing story short, um, it just made our, our model pretty untenable. We're 23-year-olds that were... Um, we were going to have to raise about 350k just to apply wow. to be brokers of securities, and then each $25, $50, $100 loan through through the site. Um, and we would crowdfund these loans together, uh, mainly because we wanted people to be able to lend $25, but you actually needed at least two, three, four, five thousand dollars for it to make an impact for these microfinance and microinsurance organizations. Um, so, long story short, it was. It had these elements of crowdfunding. I had no clue what crowdfunding was. That term um, wasn't really even coined until uh, 2010. And and so I actually was building this platform for poverty alleviation and realized, okay, it has these elements of crowdfunding to it. 
And when the model became untenable or economic, financially untenable with um, the, the new stance on online lending from the SEC, to be honest, one of the biggest insights I gained from it and kind of a blessing in disguise was by building that software in 2009, 2010, it was so early in, in kind of the uh, advent of crowdfunding that when I realized it fit in this space, that's kind of what opened my eyes into thinking, holy hell, this is going to be so much bigger than, than um, just artistic creative endeavors. It's going to be so much bigger than, um, than just micro, applying it to microinsurance or microfinance. Um, I honestly, in 2010, I, I was convinced it was going to be the next layer of the web. But I had come back from that experience uh, of building out develop.org um, pretty uh, torn up about just, I put my all in this yeah. thing. Uh, we had um, just every professor, every um, Every hero of mine that I could possibly have, Muhammad Yunus, um, was uh, was I, we had we had gotten to know the the crea- the founder of microfinance through this, and he was watching what we we're doing, and I'm sending him and my favorite professor back at uh, from undergrad and my family and all of these users that started that this email that we were shutting down, even though I had this insight that and felt like crowdfunding was going to be this this huge just paradigm shift, a decade defining phenomenon. I also was uh, was like, I'm not going to be the one that does anything with that. Um, I'm going to go back to the States. I'm going to save up. And I'm going to go to grad school. And study then, economics. Study economics <laughs> and then potentially work at the World Bank. And 30 years later, I'll affect change uh, through policy or something. But it was it was very much kind of like this. It's so weird um, now looking back. But I, had to, I could see it as clear as day. This is going to be so big. But I also felt a thousand percent like I'm not going to be an entrepreneur. So what, what changed? Working for someone else for seven months. Um, what happened? So I was working for um, uh, my dad's partner, and I was uh, I was saving up for grad school, and I was like, just thinking to myself, man, could I work for someone else for thirty years? Um, and and could I really stick it out and, and say, all right, I'll affect change, you know, through policy and through um, this really powerful organization, uh, the World Bank, or potentially through research uh, from an academic sense and and I think it was just seeing that and then having the impatience of being like, I can't wait 30, 20, even 10 years to, to have an impact. So, um, and then very, you know, it's hard to, to overstate these uh, base motivations, but I honestly just, with that impatience and with working for someone else, I was like, fuck and this, I gotta. Have I gotta you go. always been, what is the core of like, have you always been impact driven and what, what, what is like the core philosophy that drives that? Um, I don't know. I actually, this is, uh, this is a good uh, therapeutic session. Thinking through what drives it. I don't. I don't know. Have you been impact driven and, and kind of? Do you know what kind of drives that? That's a good. It's a good turnaround. It's <laughs> yeah. a good. It's a good podcast technique. Um, yes. What drives it is probably some need to matter <laughs> yeah. and be. I don't know. Some like deep. I don't know. I I didn't grow up in any sort of religious or even like ethical there was everything was like always um gray you know and yeah. so i didn't have like precepts everything's always been like ethical relativism has been the yeah and so just yeah i don't know it's a good, good question yeah i think it's um so much of so as tilt's profile has grown in the last uh nine ten twelve months it's there's been some uh, there's been kind of uh, interesting moments of 
really insightful questions I've never asked myself. And, um, and it makes me think of this phrase of a bird is not an ornithologist. And, um, and the phrase is basically, means a bird doesn't understand the physics of flight. It doesn't yeah. understand uh, aerodynamics. It's never read a textbook on, um, on how flying works. It just flies. And I think, you know, for most um, entrepreneurs, it's just this innate energy beneath their feet. And they just have to do what they do. They don't know. They don't really know why. I mean, my, I just got married a year and a half ago. And I'll tell you, my wife, she just sees the, the ups and downs. She will see kind of the... Uh, you know, it's it's not quite to the point of having night terrors, but she'll see the 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 um, anxiety and the the times of um, uncertainty on my face, and and I will tell her I don't know why I'm de- like I don't know why I'm putting myself through this uh, sometimes, um, but I just have to, and I can't imagine an alternative. Um, but it's really really difficult to articulate why. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just my father is an entrepreneur, my grandfather is an entrepreneur, my great grandfather was an entrepreneur, so fourth generation entrepreneur. Um, you know, growing up, growing up, my idols were CEOs that were uh, founders. You know, Herb Keller from uh, Southwest Airlines. Being mm-hmm. a, growing up in Dallas, it's um, we around the dinner table with my dad being an entrepreneur. We just talk about it, and so I think um, I just saw entrepreneurship as an easy way to have an impact. When did you feel? Or have you felt the most proud of yourself? This uh, this really cool tailgate on a college campus because Joe, Susie, and Sally are going uh, on Saturday. I'm going to uh, pitch into Ryan's 30th birthday because um, John, Jay, and and, um, and Julie are going. And that's basically it. That was the whole concept was take, the, take our favorite things from crowdfunding, provide it to groups of friends. But the idea was um, as much hand-waving and thought that uh, and kind of... Uh, Headlines are written about crowdfunding. Across all the major platforms, only 410, 420,000 people have crowdfunded something before. Out of 2 billion connected devices, only a couple hundred thousand people have done it. And, and so we spend a lot of time thinking about what will take it to hundreds of millions of people crowdfunding. And we think it will be new tools and it will be um, mobile-focused uh, tools and, and kind of an everyman's type of approach to, to crowdfunding. And... Um, and I think one of the things that we, we think through very, um, uh, think through a lot is if we can get people hooked on using it in these seemingly lightweight, trivial, uh, kind of small use cases of a 30th birthday, then, and then a, a fantasy football league the next day, and then a church fundraiser the next day, and the fourth time they use it, the fifth time they use it, they'll use it for something really consequential. Um, a, a friend with a medical illness that needs help. Um, you know, a, a school that needs that's shutting down their science department and and parents wanting to pool money for um, for something that they think should exist but um, they just need a good tool to aggregate the demand around that objective you know that's the the ideal is that people come in the door through something like a, a simple and, and trivial like a, their kickball league and then two weeks later they use it for something consequential my favorite time that uh, of building the software I think the proudest moment was um, a guy came in to, um, I think he was invited to a softball league um, on tilt, and then two weeks later was raising money for um, for private patrols of his neighborhood in Oakland, here in Oakland and in, uh, in California, and um, he was raising it for private patrols. And the 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 beginning of the description for the tilt was uh, simply just enough is enough. The crime here is so bad. We've gone to local. Um, 
local police force for two years asking for more patrols. They haven't delivered, and we're having broad daylight muggings here in Oakland. And I didn't know this, but o Oakland is the mugging capital of, of the country. And um, and so this, this just random guy in the neighborhood said, um, if we can collect $82 from 100 households, uh, we'll be able to afford four months of, of one person just patrolling, just in a car, with, you know, just, uh, you know, it's just a flashlight, basically, but at least some extra visibility uh, in the neighborhood. They did that. When I saw that campaign, I was blown away, and the whole team, we were just uh, maybe 20, 30 people, and we are like, man, that is what we're building this for. But I joined in the campaign because I thought it was so cool. So I pitched in 82 bucks and, and I was one of the contributors to it. And so I was on the email newsletter uh, for it. And um, two months later, the first month of patrols had gone through and, and uh, this guy Paul is sending out a, a newsletter um, of how it's gone. And in that 30 days, that one private patrol guy, just with a flashlight, um, he had cut crime by, four, they had cut crime by 46%. Wow. From a softball campaign for their, you know, 600 bucks for their softball league to using that same tool for um, cutting crime by half in their neighborhood. That is essentially the narrative arc that we hope this product has in, in a lot of people's lives. So you're just trying to get people in the door to build a habit, whatever they use it for. Yep, exactly. Get them in the door for 300 bucks for a group gift uh, for, the, um, for the baby shower for... Uh, the receptionist at the office, uh, 500 bucks for a tailgate for the Stanford game on Saturday, um, 1000 bucks for your fantasy football league, just the easiest way to collect money from a group, and then you realize, whoa, I could use this to collect money for something pretty large. Right. And, uh, yeah. Okay, so you spent seven months working for someone else. You realize you can never, you know, you got to make it, you got to do something now. How did you, how did you get about starting you know, what was crowd till at the time? You moved back to the States. How did you get your first money? You know, take yeah. us through that story. The, um, again, this is going to be a, a very unusual story because it's, I started in, I was building this originally in my bedroom in Dallas. Um, and so, so disconnected from Silicon Valley and in the world out here. Um, I did not have a single connection, not a single one. In fact, I, I had never been to San Francisco before and I came and visited and I swear to God, I was just walking through the city and I was like, all right, I don't need this. <laughs> I was so intimidated by it that I was like, I was 24, um, and I was like, I'm, I'm intimidated by this this whole world, and, but I don't need it. Uh, Groupon was being built in Chicago, so I was like, all right, Groupon's this phenomenon of Chicago. Dallas needs its own, you know, phenomenon, or maybe Austin. I'll go down to Austin, but I re it's so weird. I remember coming to San Francisco, and at this point, I was kind of, um, I was into. Uh, the the tech scene from afar. Um, you know, I checked Hacker News every day and, and um, read TechCrunch and things like that. So when I came to to San Francisco, I, I remember thinking like Jack Dorsey, he might go to this Starbucks right here. Like these these luminaries are walking through these um, the same streets that are that are out here, and there's so many of them. And I don't know why I, I look back and I remember thinking like Jack Dorsey, and this is in financial district, and I was just like. Um, it probably, he probably never goes to that part of town. Um, but, uh, I remember actually we're in his building yeah. where he used to live. Um, and so, um, it was, it was kind of like all I had were these, these 30,000 foot touch points with this world out here. And, um, and I think I was pretty intimidated by it. 
went back to Dallas. I was like, I'm gonna build this thing in, in Texas. I don't need Silicon Valley. <laughs> and, um, and so started to build it out of my uh, bedroom. And, and something that I don't know if I've ever said, and, and um, my buddy Kyle, if he's listening, um, I, owes, I owe a great deal of, uh, of appreciation to him because I was, while I was working for someone else and, and uh, working to save up, I remember being on Gchat with him and he was talking about how he and, and one of our other friends uh, were, start, were going to start a, I don't want to ruin their idea because maybe they'll build it one day, but they were going to start a startup and um, they were talking with people about investment. And I'm in this you know, nine to five and I'm just like, I saving up to go on a 30 year trek um, to, to have, uh, you know, to affect change in the world. And, I'm, and I remember having that G-chat conversation. Again, that's why you can't overestimate these base motivations in life. And I was just, I was like, F that. If he's going to go out and build his dream. I have this, this, this feeling that crowdfunding is going to be so big. And I I'd also felt like the, the current models were going to struggle to translate to mobile. And so I had these little pieces of insight. And I was like, man, I, this, there's no way I can let them go out and do this and, and me not seize this opportunity as well. So then I started coding up the first version of, of CrowdSult in my bedroom, and that was kind of like a, a really uh, seminal moment was that Gchat conversation. <laughs> and I've never said that in an interview um, ever, but, um, but I, think, I think a lot of founders and entrepreneurs will recognize that it's often these really base motivations that, mm-hmm. that get you going, or are they, they might not be the, um, they're not, they might not be what provides the majority of the horsepower, but it can trigger certain moments in life. So what was your ticket uh, from... Here, so then uh, started building it out, uh, starting to build out uh, crowd and It's just this this way for you to toss up. You know, we want to go to the baseball game. Let's get tickets together. We're going to go to a concert. We want to get a party bus on Friday. Night. So you toss it up, and you um, and the kind of the uh, gist of the idea was um, like other crowdfunding platforms, you would authorize credit cards but not charge them until you hit this uh, tilt, and, uh, and then it was on. And um, you know, I I had seen that applied to. Uh, Kickstarter and group, and I was like, man, if you could apply this to group objectives too, um, this would be really just, just how I would plan things. So um, started to get a few friends to use it. What was pretty cool and, and uh, pretty crazy looking back is um, the average campaign you'd invite, you'd have to invite friends to use it. So you throw up a, a let's get a party bus to go to the Texas Rangers game, and 24 people would pitch in it. From those 24 a subset would split off and they'd start their own campaign. Then you have a ski trip for uh, people collecting 8,000 bucks for the house on their ski trip. You'd have uh, a campaign for people collecting money for you know, Clark's uh, 25th birthday and things like that. And then you'd have people use it for um, their book club, their kickball league, their, these things that, uh, that we all do kind of in our day-to-day lives. But, um, but you know, collecting money from 12, 15, 35 people, it's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, in PayPal and, and Venmo and, and um, you know Square, it's it's Square Cash. It's hard to collect money from thirty-seven people, even if it is right. uh, you know something as simple as as a peer-to-peer payments platform. So I saw that these this natural growth was happening, and then I was like, man, this thing is is growing. I should start thinking about raising fifty thousand dollars of investment. Uh, and long story short, as I was trying to raise the fifty thousand dollars of investment. Ended up moving down to Austin to try to be closer to angel investors and just Tech Hub. Brought on a co-founder um, and the single luckiest moment of, of Tilt's life was being introduced to my co-founder, Khaled, who this angel investor uh, introduced me to down in Austin. 
And Caleb was running strategy for Rackspace before this at 26 years old. Phenomenal, phenomenally uh, strong technical mind with strategic thinking to boot. And so we hit it off and then applied to YC. We didn't tell it. While I was trying to raise this fifty, hundred thousand dollars a small angel round, applied to YC and, and felt always, you know, I kind of just being down in Austin just for a few months, uh, it, you look around and there aren't many consumer startups yeah. out of Austin. So I thought, you know, we could try to be the only one. Uh, we could try to be the group on of Austin, but um, but something told me we needed to be, this type of software, this type of social software needed to be built in in Silicon Valley. Um, needed to be around investors that understood it. Um, the talent that that's coming from companies like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. It's no surprise that the you know all of these uh, companies are all in this twenty mile radius because getting that right is it's a pretty magic formula um, and it's really rare. So just being near the companies that have done it was pretty important, and so we applied to YC, didn't tell anyone, and um, and ended up getting in and deciding, all right, do we want to go out to California? No brainer. Yeah, no brainer. Got in first time? We did. That's awesome. Yeah. What did you see in your co-founder uh, that, you know, the first three hours that you knew, you know, he was it? Well, so the, the best advice I ever got um, was from an entrepreneur in a coffee shop in Cape Town, South Africa. And I've never heard this advice anywhere else, and it, it's always stuck with me. He said, the two most important things in building anything are trust and a network. That in building anything from a lawnmower business to a lawnmowing business to um, a massive tech startup, um, if you have those two things, you can get everything else. If you have trust and a network, you can get the investment. That's it. You can find and recruit the best people. Um, that are going to be needed to build uh, out the platform. You can refine the idea. You have people that give you feedback on uh, strategy. Um, you have the technical chops to, to really do uh, some of the unthinkable things that are needed in, uh, in building these products. And all of these things come from those two things. Um, it's not an idea. It's not uh, experience. Those the two most important things are trust and network. And one was worth it. And he said, one is worthless without the other. Trust uh, without a network. If if you're if you got a lot of trust from your mom, but she's the only one in your network, you're going to struggle to build something. If you have a big network, you graduate from Harvard Business School, but no one trusts you, you're going to struggle to build something. So having both, you know, and and you need to have both. Um, you can really uh, compensate for everything else that's needed. And so I've seen that play out so many times. Um, and I met Caleb through building a relationship with an angel investor in Austin. And he just said to me one time, he's like, um, I, his name's Bill Babel, and he said, you know, go back to, uh, you know, I want to invest, but I'll only invest if you can find a co-founder because what you're about to do, what you're about to embark on is going to be so hard. Um, and young co-founders uh, are just young founders, I really believe in. He, he felt very emphatic on, on getting co-founders um, to build out uh, a startup. And so uh, went back to Dallas, tried to find a co-founder, couldn't find one. Call this this guy Bill up again and say, uh, and I told him I, I'm not I'm having trouble finding a, a founder out here. Can I come sleep on your couch in Austin, and and meet folks down there, try to find a co-founder down there. And he said, actually, there's one guy down here. His name's Caleb, and um, Bill had sold his company to Rackspace, so he was there at Rackspace, and he was like, if uh, if I were to start my next company, it would be with this guy Caleb. So if you can get him on board, I'll invest. Like on the spot, wow. so I was like, "Shit, I got to get this guy on board," <laughs> and um, and went down to Austin, 
And so I had that going in, that introduction from Bill was, was huge to know this is the dude that is probably the smartest angel investor in Austin um, is saying he would start his next company with this guy. That was the most kind of the most invaluable introduction you could possibly have. And the other, you know, vice versa, him believing in the idea and, and believing in me as a founder, he's also making this introduction to, um, to this, to this guy's, you know, prized uh, connection he has with, with this guy, Caleb. And, um, I don't really know what he said to Caleb, but he must have piqued Caleb's interest to where in those three hours in that first coffee, Caleb was going to the coffee feeling like, Hey, this could be the next thing I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. And, yeah. So that that was huge. It was you know before the coffee even happened. So you had the vision for for crowdfunding in as early as two thousand nine, two thousand ten, that it was going to be huge. It's yeah. It's still it's still far from the mainstream. So that's my question. It's five years later. Where are we now? It's um, you know in, in any exponential growth, um, it's going to be bottom heavy. So I I the way I described it back in back then and the way I describe it now, it's is that I think it will be the decade defining phenomenon. And we're kind of in the boiling water, and it's happening around us, and there's so much hand-waving about it, but it has yet to really hit the mainstream and affect, um, I think, the, uh, affect the mainstream and, uh, in a way that, that you've seen social networking affect the mainstream. Um, I think it is still maybe two or three years from doing that, but I think we'll look back in this decade and say, man, the ability to add Money to the equation and the amount of collaboration, online coordination that's happening, adding in this next this next layer of uh, finances to it, um, that I think will be the the decade defining phenomenon um, that we look back on. So the next five years, I think it will come to fruition and will actually hit the mainstream. We'll go from a couple hundred thousand people crowdfunding to a couple hundred million in the next five years. What does success mean to you? It's simple, just being able to do what we're doing every single day, and just to be able to continue doing it. That's um, the, you know, it's pretty. And um, one end of the spectrum is pretty humble goals. It's just simple, like we love what we get to do each day. We just want to make sure we get to continue doing it. But then you know, looking at uh, a what we're building and kind of a, a social network around payments, it is. Um, we know that it will most likely have a. Um, one big winner in the space and we've got to work our tails off to give ourselves a chance to be that winner. Um, I think I think things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo are going to be cool forever. I think you know, uh, 20 years from now, Kickstarter is still going to be awesome. But I do think um, a $50,000 documentary, a $60,000 hardware project, that really only applies to maybe 2 or 3% of the population. But 85%, 95% of the population will have something that they do with a group in the next 90 days. And that that applies to us in, in a um, a subtle but pretty profound way. That if we can get more and more people around an idea from your you know local community cause to um, your fraternity Friday night late night uh, rager, um, this tool can be uh, pretty mainstream and pretty impactful in your day to day life. Um, and I think that that is. Um, for us to be able to continue to do it each day, we're going to have to be this this day to day utility in people's lives. If in an ideal world, tilt becomes everything you guys want it to be, it becomes the main winner or the major winner in the space. It achieves all the dreams possible. What do you do next? Um, you know, I think it's in building a startup. It's really important to, and again, it's. Um, 
I think there there will be a handful of of, of awesome uh, applications and platforms in this space. Um, but I, I do see us building it for the mobile world in a way that we haven't seen, um, yeah. that I'm really surprised that no one else has really started to focus on. Um, I, I mean, you personally. So, yeah, so, oh, okay. like, the, just continue doing it. But I'd say as, as any good founder knows, you got to climb the hill you're on and not worry yeah. about the ones on the horizon. So uh, we don't even really think about what happens after. Uh, yeah. If you, uh, it's kind of a crazy question. If you, let's just say, imagine... What, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Whoa. <laughs> um, that's a curveball. I'm, I've never gotten that question before. Very, Eric, very nice. Uh, this is... Actually, I think I've heard you ask this question on another podcast. Um, Potentially. The, um, what do I want people to say at my funeral? Um, to be honest, I think it, it would come down to, you know, I just got married and I don't have any kids, but I imagine it would come down to just family um, feeling like I had a big impact in, the, in their lives. Um, and I think, you know, disappointment or frustration is a function of expectation uh, management or mismanagement. So I think, you know, setting grandiose expectations uh, I think can can often lead to a lot more misery than than um, than delight. So I'd say you know I'd have pretty humble expectations of really wanting just my family to say I was a good father, good husband, good uh, brother, good son. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't know. I've never thought about that question. That's really interesting. Uh, do you think about that idea though of expectations and managing oh, them all the time, all the time? I think. Um, you know, it's, my dad essentially raised us of equal parts Buddhism, equal parts Catholicism. And so um, from that uh, psychotherapeutics lens of, of Zen Buddhism, um, I think it's very, very, I, I think I approach my day-to-day um, as a founder um, driven and, and through that lens. Um, and yeah, I think mismanaged expectations can actually be one of the biggest sources of misery out there. Uh, and frustration and, and disappointment. So, you know, it's even when I talk about how big uh, Tilt um, we want to we want to um, build Tilt to be. I think it actually just comes down to that is just the the input that's needed so that the output of us being able to do it each day can happen. Um, it's not a this needs to be big for some destination, you know, around the corner or at the end of the the. Uh, the rainbow, it's actually just, um, it needs to be big so we can do this for a really long time because we love doing it every single day. Um, that is, you know, going back to that cliche, the journey is the, de- the, the journey is the destination. That is this cliche that you can hear a thousand times and then you see it in action. It's like, man, I, I don't want anything more but to be able to do this every single day. Then you stack up what you need to be able to, what you need to accomplish to be able to do it each day. And it's, um, it's a pretty big feat, but, um, it's, uh, I think that that is, that is just an input. I think people that, that work towards the, the output of uh, some big exit or some big company or I want to have 10,000 employees, like that's just, that's a different way of building it. But uh, I'd say that is a high stakes way of, of potentially being really disappointed. Yeah, cool. Uh, well, 
I'm happy you are no longer knocking on doors. I'm happy you worked for someone else uh, so you can realize <laughs> that you got to start your own thing. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for what's gonna what's upcoming with Till. Well, um, so thanks for coming on. Dude, of course, it is. Uh, it has been so fun. So uh, and. On the enterprise side of things, we started to release these platform tools that some really cool startups have launched on Product Hunt. Yep. Navdi, Eero, um, Whistle, and it's and it's something that these these really cool projects that I see come to life because of the distribution and attention that they're getting through Product Hunt. So it is uh, it's it's super super cool to just be a few blocks from you guys and see what you guys are building too. Yeah. Okay, cool, awesome, Eric. Thanks for having me. Sweet.